This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Captain Blood by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter 6 Plans of Escape. After that, Arabella Bishop went daily to the shed on the wharf with gifts of fruit, and later of money and of wearing apparel for the Spanish prisoners. But she contrived so to time her visits that Peter Blood never again met her there. Also his own visits were growing shorter in a measure as his patients healed, that they all throve and returned to health under his care, whilst fully one-third of the wounded in the care of Wacker and Bronson, the two other surgeons, died of their wounds served to increase the reputation in which this rebel convict stood in Bridgetown. It may have been no more than the fortune of war, but the townsfolk did not choose to regard it so. It led to a further dwindling of the practices of his free colleagues and a further increase of his own labors and his owner's profit. Whacker and Bronson laid their heads together to devise a scheme by which this intolerable state of things should be brought to an end, but that is to anticipate. One day, whether by accident or design, Peter Blood came striding down the wharf a full half-hour earlier than usual, and so met Miss Bishop just issuing from the shed. He doffed his hat and stood aside to give her passage. She took it, chin in the air, and eyes which disdained to look anywhere where the sight of him was possible. "'Miss Arabella,' said he, on a coaxing, pleading note. She grew conscious of his presence, and looked him over with an air that was faintly, mockingly searching. "'La!' she said. "'It's the delicate-minded gentleman.' Peter groaned. "'Am I so hopelessly beyond forgiveness? I ask it very humbly.' "'What condescension! It is cruel to mock me,' said he, and adopted mock humility. "'After all, I am but a slave, and you might be ill one of these days.' "'What then?' "'It would be humiliating to send for me if you treat me like an enemy. You are not the only doctor in Bridgetown, but I am the least dangerous.' She grew suddenly suspicious of him, aware that he was permitting himself to rally her, and in a measure she had already yielded to it. She stiffened and looked him over again. "'You make too free, I think,' she rebuked him. "'A doctor's privilege. I am not your patient. Please to remember it in future.' And on that, unquestionably angry, she departed. "'Now is she a vixen, or am I a fool, or is it both?' he asked the blue vault of heaven and then went into the shed. It was to be a morning of excitements. As he was leaving an hour or so later, Whacker, the younger of the other two physicians, joined him. An unprecedented condescension this, for hitherto neither of them had addressed him beyond an occasional and surly, "'Good day.' "'If you are Colonel Bishops, I'll walk with you a little way, Dr. Blood,' said he. He was a short, broad man of five-and-forty, with pendulous cheeks and hard blue eyes. Peter Blood was startled. But he dissembled it. "'I am for Government House,' he said. "'Ah, to be sure, the Governor's lady.' And he laughed. Or perhaps he sneered. Peter Blood was not quite certain. "'She encroaches a deal upon your time, I hear. Youth and good looks, Dr. Blood. Youth and good looks. They are inestimable advantages in our profession as in others, particularly where the ladies are concerned.' Peter stared at him. "'If you mean what you seem to mean—' You had better say it to Governor Steed. It may amuse him. You surely misapprehended me. I hope so. You're so very hot now. The doctor linked his arm through Peter's. I protest I desire to be your friend, to serve you. Now listen. Instinctively his voice grew lower. 
This slavery in which you find yourself must be singularly irksome to a man of parts such as yourself. What institutions? cried sardonic Mr. Blood. But the doctor took him literally. I am no fool, my dear doctor. I know a man when I see one, and often I can tell his thoughts. If you can tell me mine, you'll persuade me of it, said Mr. Blood. Dr. Whacker drew still closer to him as they stepped along the wharf. He lowered his voice to a still more confidential tone. His hard blue eyes peered up into the swart, sardonic face of his companion, who was a head taller than himself. How often have I not seen you staring out over the sea, your soul in your eyes? Don't I know what you are thinking? If you could escape from this hell of slavery, you could exercise the profession of which you are an ornament as a free man with pleasure and profit to yourself. The world is large. There are many nations besides England where a man of your parts would be warmly welcomed. There are many colonies besides these English ones. Lower still came the voice until it was no more than a whisper, yet there was no one within earshot. It is none so far now to the Dutch settlement of Curaçao. At this time of the year the voyage may safely be undertaken in a light craft, and Curaçao need be no more than a stepping-stone to the great world, which would lie open to you once you were delivered from this bondage. Dr. Whacker ceased. He was pale and a little out of breath, but his hard eyes continued to study his impassive companion. "'Well,' he said, after a pause, "'what do you say to that?' Yet Blood did not immediately answer. His mind was heaving in tumult, and he was striving to calm it that he might take a proper survey of this thing flung into it to create so monstrous a disturbance. He began where another might have ended. "'I have no money, and for that a handsome sum would be necessary.' "'Did I not say that I desired to be your friend?' "'Why?' asked Peter Blood at point-blank range. But he never heeded the answer. Whilst Dr. Wacker was professing that his heart bled for a brother doctor languishing in slavery, denied the opportunity which his gifts entitled him to make for himself, Peter Blood pounced like a hawk upon the obvious truth. Wacker and his colleague desired to be rid of one who threatened to ruin them. Sluggishness of decision was never a fault of Blood's. He leapt where another crawled, and so this thought of evasion never entertained until planted there, now by Dr. Whacker, sprouted into instant growth. "'I see, I see,' he said, whilst his companion was still talking, explaining, and to save Dr. Whacker's face he played the hypocrite. "'It is very noble in you, very brotherly, as between men of medicine. It is what I myself should wish to do in like case.' The hard eyes flashed. The husky voice grew tremulous as the other asked almost too eagerly. "'You agree, then? You agree?' "'Agree?' Blood laughed. "'If I should be caught and brought back, they'd clip my wings and brand me for life.' "'Surely the thing is worth a little risk?' More tremulous than ever was the tempter's voice. "'Surely,' Blood agreed. "'But it asks more than courage. It asks money. A sloop might be bought for twenty pounds, perhaps?' It shall be forthcoming. It shall be a loan which you shall repay us. Repay me when you can. That betraying us so hastily retrieved completed Blood's understanding. The other doctor was also in the business. They were approaching the peopled part of the mole. Quickly but eloquently, Blood expressed his thanks, where he knew that no thanks were due. We will talk of this again, sir, to-morrow, he concluded. You have opened for me the gates of hope. In that at least he tittered no more than the bare truth, and expressed it very baldly. 
It was, indeed, as if a door had been suddenly flung open to the sunlight for escape from a dark prison in which a man had thought to spend his life. He was in haste now to be alone, to straighten out his agitated mind and plan coherently what was to be done. Also he must consult another. Already he had hit upon that other. For such a voyage a navigator would be necessary, and a navigator was ready to his hand in Jeremy Pitt. The first thing was to take counsel with the young shipmaster, who must be associated with him in this business if it were to be undertaken. All that day his mind was in turmoil with this new hope, and he was sick with impatience for night and a chance to discuss the matter with his chosen partner. As a result, blood was betimes that evening in the spacious stockade that enclosed the huts of the slaves, together with the big white house of the overseer, and he found an opportunity of a few words with Pitt, unobserved by the others. Tonight. When we are all asleep, come to my cabin. I have something to say to you." The young man stared at him, roused by Blood's pregnant tone out of the mental lethargy into which he had of late been lapsing as a result of the dehumanizing life he lived. Then he nodded understanding and assent, and they moved apart. The six months of plantation life in Barbados had made an almost tragic mark upon the young seaman. His erstwhile bright alertness was all departed. His face was growing vacuous, his eyes were dull and lack-luster, and he moved in a cringing, furtive manner, like an overbeaten dog. He had survived the ill-nourishment, the excessive work on the sugar plantation under a pitiless sun, the lashes of the overseer's whip when his labors flagged, and the deadly, unrelieved animal life to which he was condemned. But the price he was paying for survival was the usual price. He was in danger of becoming no better than an animal of sinking to the level of the negroes who sometimes toiled beside him. The man, however, was still there, not yet dormant, but merely torpid from a surfeit of despair, and the man in him promptly shook off that torpidity, and awoke at the first words Blood spoke to him that night, awoke and wept. "'Escape!' he panted. "'Oh, God!' He took his head in his hands, and fell to sobbing like a child. "'Shh! Steady now! Steady!' Blood admonished him in a whisper, alarmed by the lad's blubbering. He crossed to Pitt's side, and set a restraining hand upon his shoulder. "'For God's sake, command yourself. If we're overheard, we shall both be flogged for this.' Among the privileges enjoyed by Blood was that of a hut to himself, and they were alone in this. But after all, it was built of wattles thinly plastered with mud, and its door was composed of bamboos, through which sound passed very easily. Though the stockade was locked for the night, and all within it asleep by now, it was after midnight, yet a prowling overseer was not impossible, and a sound of voices must lead to discovery. Pitt realized this, and controlled his outburst of emotion. Sitting close thereafter, they talked in whispers for an hour or more, and all the while those dulled wits of Pitt's were sharpening themselves anew upon this precious whetstone of hope. They would need to recruit others into their enterprise, a half-dozen at least a half-score if possible, but no more than that. They must pick the best out of that score of survivors of the Monmouth men that Colonel Bishop had acquired. Men who understood the sea were desirable. But of these there were only two in that unfortunate gang, and their knowledge was none too full. They were Hagthorpe, a gentleman who had served in the Royal Navy, and Nicholas Dyke, who had been a petty officer in the late King's time, and there was another who had been a gunner, a man named Ogle. It was agreed before they parted that Pitt should begin with these three, and then proceed to recruit some six or eight others. He was to move with the utmost caution, 
sounding his men very carefully before making anything in the nature of a disclosure, and even then avoid rendering that disclosure so full that its betrayal might frustrate the plans which as yet had to be worked out in detail. Laboring with them in the plantations, Pitt would not want for opportunities of broaching the matter to his fellow-slaves. Caution above everything was Blood's last recommendation to him at parting. Who goes slowly goes safely, as the Italians have it, and remember that if you betray yourself you ruin all, for you are the only navigator among us, and without you there is no escaping. Pitt reassured him, and slunk off back to his own hut and the straw that served him for a bed. Coming next morning to the wharf, Blood found Dr. Whacker in a generous mood. Having slept on the matter, he was prepared to advance the convict any sum up to thirty pounds that would enable him to acquire a boat capable of taking him away from the settlement. Blood expressed his thanks becomingly, betraying no sign that he saw clearly into the true reason of the other's munificence. "'It's not money I'll require,' said he, "'but the boat itself, for who will be selling me a boat and incurring the penalties in Governor Steed's proclamation? You'll have read it, no doubt.' Dr. Whacker's heavy face grew overcast. Thoughtfully he rubbed his chin. "'I've read it, yes, and I dare not procure the boat for you. It would be discovered. It must be.' and the penalty is a fine of two hundred pounds besides imprisonment. It would ruin me. You'll see that." The high hopes in Blood's soul began to shrink, and the shadow of his despair overcast his face. But then, he faltered, there is nothing to be done. Nay, nay, things are not so desperate. Dr. Whacker smiled a little with tight lips. I've thought of it. You will see that the man who buys the boat must be one of those who goes with you so that he is not here to answer questions afterwards. But who is to go with me save men in my own case? What I cannot do, they cannot. There are others detained on the island besides slaves. There are several who are here for debt, and would be glad enough to spread their wings. There's a fellow Nuttall, now, who follows the trade of a shipwright, whom I happen to know would welcome such a chance as you might afford him. But how should a debtor come with money to buy a boat? The question will be asked. To be sure it will, but if you contrive shrewdly, you'll all be gone before that happens." Blood nodded understanding, and the doctor, setting a hand upon his sleeve, unfolded the scheme he had conceived. "'You shall have the money from me at once. Having received it, you'll forget that it was I who supplied it to you. You have friends in England, relatives perhaps, who sent it out to you through the agency of one of your Bridgetown patients, whose name as a man of honour you will on no account divulge, lest you bring trouble upon him. That is your tale if there are questions." He paused, looking hard at Blood. Blood nodded understanding and assent. Relieved, the doctor continued. But there should be no questions if you go carefully to work. You concert matters with Nuttall. You enlist him as one of your companions, and a shipwright should be a very useful member of your crew. You engage him to discover a likely sloop whose owner is disposed to sell. Then you let your preparations all be made before the purchase is effected, so that your escape may follow instantly upon it before the inevitable questions come to be asked. You take me?" So well did Blood take him that within an hour he contrived to see Nuttall, and found the fellow as disposed to the business as Dr. Whacker had predicted. When he left the shipwright, it was agreed that Nuttall should seek the boat required, for which Blood would at once produce the money. The quest took longer than expected by Blood, who waited impatiently with the doctor's gold concealed about his person. But at the end of some three weeks, Nuttall, whom he was now meeting daily, 
informed him that he had found a serviceable wherry, and that its owner was disposed to sell it for twenty-two pounds. That evening, on the beach, remote from all eyes, Peter Blood handed that sum to his new associate, and Nuttall went off with instructions to complete the purchase late on the following day. He was to bring the boat to the wharf, where under cover of night Blood and his fellow convicts would join him and make off. Everything was ready. In the shed, from which all the wounded men had now been removed and which had since remained untenanted, Nuttall had concealed the necessary stores. A hundredweight of bread, a quantity of cheese, a cask of water and some few bottles of canary, a compass, quadrant, chart, half-hour glass, log and line, a tarpaulin, some carpenter's tools, and a lantern and candles. And in the stockade all was likewise in readiness. Hagthorpe, Dyke, and Ogle had agreed to join the venture, and eight others had been carefully recruited. In Pitt's hut, which he shared with five other rebels convict, all of whom were to join in this bid for liberty, a ladder had been constructed in secret during those nights of waiting. With this they were to surmount the stockade and gain the open. The risk of detection, so that they made little noise, was negligible. Beyond locking them all into that stockade at night, there was no great precaution taken. Where, after all, could any so foolish as to attempt escape hope to conceal himself in that island? The chief risk lay in discovery by those of their companions who were to be left behind. It was because of these that they must go cautiously and in silence. The day that was to have been their last in Barbados was a day of hope and anxiety to the twelve associates in that enterprise, no less than to Nuttall in the town below. Towards sunset, having seen Nuttall depart to purchase and fetch the sloop to the prearranged moorings at the wharf, Peter Blood came sauntering towards the stockade, just as the slaves were being driven in from the fields. He stood aside at the entrance to let them pass, and beyond the message of hope flashed by his eyes he held no communication with them. He entered the stockade in their wake, and as they broke their ranks to seek their various respective huts, he beheld Colonel Bishop in talk with Kent, the overseer. The pair were standing by the stocks, planted in the middle of that green space for the punishment of offending slaves. As he advanced, Bishop turned to regard him, scowling. "'Where have you been this while?' he bawled, and although a minatory note was normal to the colonel's voice, yet Blood felt his heart tightening apprehensively. "'I've been at my work in the town,' he answered. "'Mrs. Patch has a fever, and Mr. Decker has sprained his ankle.' "'I sent for you to Decker's, and you were not there.' You are given to idling, my fine fellow. We shall have to quicken you one of these days unless you cease from abusing the liberty you enjoy. Do you forget that you're a rebel convict? I am not given the chance, said Blood, who could never learn to curb his tongue. By God, will you be pert with me? Remembering all that was at stake, growing suddenly conscious that from the huts surrounding the enclosure anxious ears were listening, he instantly practiced an unusual submission. Not pert, sir. I—I I am sorry. I should have been sought. Aye, and you'll be sorrier yet. There's the governor with an attack of gout, screaming like a wounded horse, and you nowhere to be found. Be off, man. Away with you at speed to Government House. You're awaited, I tell you. Best lend him a horse, Kent, or the lout'll be all night getting there. They bustled him away, choking almost from a reluctance that he dared not show. The thing was unfortunate, but after all not beyond remedy. The escape was set for midnight, and he should easily be back by then. He mounted the horse that Kent procured him, intending to make all haste. "'How shall I re-enter the stockade, sir?' he inquired at parting. "'You will not re-enter it,' said Bishop. 
When they've done with you at Government House, they may find a kennel for you there until morning. Peter Blood's heart sank like a stone through water. But, he began, Be off, I say. Will you stand there talking until dark? His Excellency is waiting for you. And with his cane, Colonel Bishop slashed the horse's quarters so brutally that the beast bounded forward all but unseating her rider. Peter Blood went off in a state of mind bordering on despair. And there was occasion for it. A postponement of the escape, at least until tomorrow night, was necessary now. And postponement must mean the discovery of Nuttall's transaction and the asking of questions it would be difficult to answer. It was in his mind to slink back in the night, once his work at Government House were done, and from the outside of the stockade make known to Pitt and the others his presence, and so have them join him that their project might still be carried out. But in this he reckoned without the Governor, whom he found really in the thrall of a severe attack of gout, and almost as severe an attack of temper nourished by blood's delay. The doctor was kept in constant attendance upon him until long after midnight, when at last he was able to ease the sufferer a little by bleeding. Thereupon he would have withdrawn, but Steed would not hear of it. Blood must sleep in his own chamber to be at hand in case of need. It was as if fate made sport of him. For that night at least the escape must be definitely abandoned. Not until the early hours of the morning did Peter Blood succeed in making a temporary escape from Government House on the ground that he required certain medicaments which he must himself procure from the apothecary. On that pretext he made an excursion into the awakening town, and went straight to Nuttall, whom he found in a state of livid panic. The unfortunate debtor, who had sat up waiting through the night, conceived that all was discovered and that his own ruin would be involved. Peter Blood quieted his fears. "'It will be for to-night instead,' he said, with more assurance than he felt. "'If I have to bleed the governor to death, be ready as last night.' "'But if there are questions meanwhile,' bleated Nuttall. He was a thin, pale, small-featured man, with weak eyes that now blinked desperately. "'Answer as best you can. Use your wits, man. I can stay no longer.' And Peter went off to the apothecary for his pretexted drugs. Within an hour of his going came an officer of the secretary's to Nuttall's miserable hovel. The seller of the boat had, as by law required since the coming of the rebel's convict, duly reported the sale at the secretary's office, so that he might obtain the reimbursement of the ten-pound surety into which every keeper of a small boat was compelled to enter. The secretary's office postponed this reimbursement until it should have obtained confirmation of the transaction. "'We are informed that you have bought a wherry from Mr. Robert Farrell,' said the officer. "'That is so,' said Nuttall, who conceived that for him this was the end of the world. "'You are in no haste, it seems, to declare the same at the secretary's office.' The emissary had a proper bureaucratic haughtiness. Nuttall's weak eyes blinked at a redoubled rate. "'To—to to declare it? You know it's the law.' "'I—I didn't, may it please you. "'But it's in the proclamation published last January.' "'I—I can't read, sir. I didn't know.' "'Faugh!' the messenger withered him with his disdain. "'Well, now you're informed. See to it that you are at the secretary's office before noon with the ten-pound surety into which you are obliged to enter.' The pompous officer departed, leaving Nuttall in a cold perspiration despite the heat of the morning. He was thankful that the fellow had not asked the question he most dreaded, which was how he, a debtor, should come by the money to buy a wherry. But this he knew was only a respite. 
The question would presently be asked of a certainty, and then hell would be open for him. He cursed the hour in which he had been such a fool as to listen to Peter Blood's chatter of escape. He thought it very likely that the whole plot would be discovered, and that he would probably be hanged, or at least branded and sold into slavery like those other damned rebels convict, with whom he had been so mad as to associate himself. If only he had the ten pounds for this infernal surety, which until this moment had never entered into their calculations, it was possible that the thing might be done quickly and questions postponed until later. As the secretary's messenger had overlooked the fact that he was a debtor, so might the others at the secretary's office, at least for a day or two, and in that time he would, he hoped, be beyond the reach of their questions. But in the meantime, what was to be done about this money? And it was to be found before noon. Nuttall snatched up his hat, and went out in quest of Peter Blood. But where look for him? Wandering aimlessly up the irregular, unpaved street, he ventured to inquire of one or two if they had seen Dr. Blood that morning. He affected to be feeling none so well, and indeed his appearance bore out the deception. None could give him information, and since Blood had never told him of Wacker's share in this business, he walked in his unhappy ignorance past the door of the one man in Barbados who would eagerly have saved him in this extremity. Finally he determined to go to Colonel Bishop's plantation. Probably Blood would be there. If he were not, Nuttall would find Pitt and leave a message with him. He was acquainted with Pitt and knew of Pitt's share in this business. His pretext for seeking blood must still be that he needed medical assistance. And at the same time that he set out, insensitive in his anxiety to the broiling heat, to climb the heights to the north of the town, blood was setting out from Government House at last, having so far eased the Governor's condition as to be permitted to depart. Being mounted, he would, but for an unexpected delay, have reached the stockade ahead of Natal, in which case several unhappy events might have been averted. The unexpected delay was occasioned by Miss Arabella Bishop. They met at the gate of the luxuriant garden of Government House, and Miss Bishop, herself mounted, stared to see Peter Blood on horseback. It happened that he was in good spirits. The fact that the Governor's condition had so far improved as to restore him his freedom of movement had sufficed to remove the depression under which he had been laboring for the past twelve hours and more. In its rebound the mercury of his mood had shot higher far than present circumstances warranted. He was disposed to be optimistic. What had failed last night would certainly not fail again to-night. What was a day, after all? The secretary's office might be troublesome, but not really troublesome for another twenty-four hours at least, and by then they would be well away. This joyous confidence of his was his first misfortune. The next was that his good spirits were also shared by Miss Bishop, and that she bore no rancor. The two things conjoined to make the delay that in its consequences was so deplorable. "'Good morning, sir,' she hailed him pleasantly. "'It's close upon a month since I last saw you.' Twenty-one days to the hour,' said he. "'I've counted them.' "'I vow I was beginning to believe you dead. "'I have to thank you for the wreath.' "'The wreath?' "'To deck my grave,' he explained. "'Must you ever be rallying?' she wondered, and looked at him gravely, remembering that it was his rallying on the last occasion that had driven her away in dudgeon. A man must sometimes laugh at himself or go mad, said he. Few realize it. That is why there are so many madmen in the world. You may laugh at yourself all you will, sir. But sometimes I think you laugh at me, which is not civil. Then, faith, you're wrong. I laugh only at the comic. And you are not comic at all. <laughs> what am I, then? she asked him, laughing. A moment he pondered her, so fair and fresh to behold so entirely maidenly, and yet so entirely frank and unabashed. 
"'You are,' he said, "'the niece of the man who owns me his slave.' But he spoke lightly, so lightly that she was encouraged to insistence. "'Nay, sir, that is an evasion. You shall answer me truthfully this morning.' "'Truthfully? To answer you at all is a labour. But to answer truthfully? Oh, well, now I should say of you that he'll be lucky who counts you his friend.' It was in his mind to add more, but he left it there. "'That's mighty civil,' said she. "'You've a nice taste in compliments, Mr. Blood. Another in your place. Faith, now, don't I know what another would have said? Don't I know my fellow-man at all?' "'Sometimes I think you do, and sometimes I think you don't. Anyway, you don't know your fellow-woman. There was that affair of the Spaniards.' "'Will you never forget it?' "'Never.' bad cess to your memory. Is there no good in me at all that you could be dwelling on instead? Oh, several things. For instance, now. He was almost eager. You speak excellent Spanish. Is that all? He sank back into dismay. Where did you learn it? Have you been in Spain? That I have. I was two years in a Spanish prison. In prison? Her tone suggested apprehensions in which he had no desire to leave her. "'As a prisoner of war,' he explained, "'I was taken fighting with the French, in French service, that is.' "'But you're a doctor!' she cried. "'That's merely a diversion, I think. By trade I am a soldier. At least it's a trade I followed for ten years. It brought me no great gear, but it served me better than medicine, which, as you may observe, has brought me into slavery.' I'm thinking it's more pleasing in the sight of heaven to kill men than to heal them. Sure it must be. But how came you to be a soldier and to serve the French? I am Irish, you see, and I studied medicine. Therefore, since it's a perverse nation we are— Oh, but it's a long story, and the Colonel will be expecting my return. She was not in that way to be defrauded of her entertainment. If he would wait a moment they would ride back together— she had but come to inquire of the governor's health at her uncle's request. So he waited, and so they rode back together to Colonel Bishop's house. They rode very slowly, at a walking pace, and some whom they passed marvelled to see the doctor slave on such apparently intimate terms with his owner's niece. One or two may have promised themselves that they would drop a hint to the colonel, but the two rode oblivious of all others in the world that morning. He was telling her the story of his early turbulent days, and at the end of it he dwelt more fully than hitherto upon the manner of his arrest and trial. The tale was barely done when they drew up at Colonel's door, and dismounted. Peter Blood surrendered his nag to one of the negro grooms, who informed them that the Colonel was at home at the moment. Even then they lingered a moment, she detaining him. "'I am sorry, Mr. Blood, that I did not know before,' she said, and there was a suspicion of moisture in those clear hazel eyes. With a compelling friendliness she held out her hand to him. "'Why, what difference could it have made?' he asked. "'Some, I think. You have been very hardly used by fate.' "'Ah, oh, now,' he paused. His keen sapphire eyes considered her steadily for a moment under his level black brows. "'It might have been worse,' he said, with a significance which brought a tinge of colour to her cheeks and a flutter to her eyelids. He stooped to kiss her hand before realizing it, and she did not deny him. Then he turned and strode off towards the stockade a half-mile away, and a vision of her face went with him, tinted with a rising blush and a sudden unusual shyness. 
He forgot in that little moment that he was a rebel convict with ten years of slavery before him. He forgot that he had planned an escape, which was to be carried into effect that night. Forgot even the peril of discovery, which as a result of the governor's gout now overhung him. End of chapter 6 Read by Sandra In Wales, United Kingdom June 2006